Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. Tiso. Chantal. And I'm Mikla Benson. And today we're doing a special live recording from the Sociological Review Conference up in Gateshead. And today Mikla is here and she's going to be interviewing us, which is weird because normally we're the ones interviewing other people. <laughs> like that yeah it's true <laughs> so i'm in charge right saskia <laughs> yes <laughs> the way it should be okay um, so i'm the managing editor from the sociological review i also run my own podcast but i was really inspired by surviving society first when they set off i think am i your most avid listener I think you're definitely the person that messages me first like love the episode and you started listening in the beginning as well which was last September 2017 when we started. So for anyone who hasn't listened, listen. I just yeah whenever you tweet about us our listens go through the roof so you're (laughs) Nicholas is literally our biggest fan. (laughs) We're an influencer on Twitter. Seems it. (laughs) Didn't realise myself I have to say Tiso but Maybe, maybe. What I want to do today is I really want to talk to Tiso, Saskia and Chantel about the podcast and think about what it means to podcast to get through your PhD. Why did you start the podcast? Why did you think it was important to do that? Well, Tiso, Saskia and I met um, whilst doing a compulsory quants um, course at Goldsmiths. Me and Tisa were doing it as part of our PhD and then Saskia was doing the um, MA in social research and we sort of bonded quite a lot talking about politics and current affairs and this was in the year of Brexit, Trump and then Grenfell and me and Saskia had spoken about doing something like this and Saskia was like oh if I ever do a blog or a podcast I really want to call it Surviving Society and I was like that's such a good name (laughs) and then we'd spoke about it for like eight months didn't we I'd say like quite a long time and then I think a really big catalyst for me was after Grenfell and looking at media representations and just feeling really frustrated with how stories and political moments were coming across in the media and just wanting to put out more of a sociological analysis doing more to put out sociological theory and why that can help us explain things that have happened basically I didn't really think we were ever going to do it like I was the kind of thing I said Chantal being like I just feel like I have all this rage and I need to express this rage somewhere and I feel like if I just like recorded myself and then like made a podcast and then didn't have to think about it anymore that would be like this kind of cathartic experience but I think also because I had a couple of years out of um, higher education my source of news was like Radio 4 I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Like every day you'd turn on the radio and be like, what is happening? And then, you know, like all these like huge political events and the kind of analysis you're getting is so crap and superficial. Also, sorry, I didn't say at the beginning, but we do swear on our podcast. So (laughs) I make no apologies for it. I'm just warning you. (laughs) What a shocker. (laughs) So yeah, I just, I was so angry and so frustrated. And then, yeah, like I felt like Chantal and Tiso and I, we had this like very like organic energy and we'd have these like very long conversations where we'd all be like, yes, I feel the same. I also feel enraged, but for like slightly different reasons. 
yeah, then Chantal was like, okay, I've booked us a room. <laughs> We're going to start podcasting. Because I was just like, I can't do it. I'm doing my master's. We'll do it when I start my PhD. Being like, that's ages away. And Chantal was like, right, this date in September, let's go. I've booked rooms. We're going to do it now. And I was like, okay. If you listen to our first episodes, we are so nervous. <laughs> it was like so awkward. <laughs> I don't know. For me, I hadn't been in higher education since 2003. So I've been living in the real world. So when I came back to higher education, I was talking about stuff with people and then leaving it and talking to my friends who had no interest whatsoever. In fact, most of them don't even know what a PhD is. So they were saying, they actually think I'm becoming a history teacher. All my friends think I'm a history teacher. I don't know, I don't even know why that is. Um, so it was a way of, I don't know, for me, stop being it so alienated because I'd be with my friends and I'd be trying to say, what's your research topic? And I'd be saying to them like, why would you do that? Why, why do you want to do that? I'm like, aren't you interested? No, they didn't care. <laughs> so um, it was a way for me to kind of keep me sane, basically. And so, yeah, to talk about stuff that I care about and people that care about stuff like that as well. So that's it, literally, to keep myself sane. I think a consequence of us wanting to have a space to talk about these issues is, well, not a consequence, of something that's happened alongside of that is it's really helped us academically in our PhDs, in our writing, in our speaking and the way we communicate ourselves. I feel like I'm in a really good place with my research now because of the podcast. It's really helped me just align my thoughts and made me more confident in writing. And like, it sounds weird. Like why would a podcast make you feel, like why would speaking make you write better? But it, it has definitely. I think I share that experience as well from my podcasting because you have to suddenly refine down what you want to say in your case into an hour-long episode in my case into 20 minutes which is a real well there are three of you though so I suppose that's 20 minutes each but um, which is a skill that you need when you're presenting at conferences and I do feel that thing that I'd thought before of I can't possibly reduce my work down to 20 minutes for a conference presentation just like no now it's much more straightforward I think it makes me a bit more reflexive. So before I used to have an opinion and think, that's my opinion. But now you have to kind of think about it really and think, well, what do other people think? And what's the kind of other side of the argument? Really think about it rather than just saying your side and just leaving it as that. So I think I've become a bit more critical and a bit more thoughtful from doing podcasting, I think. When I'm listening to your podcast, you often come in as devil's advocate, Tiso. <laughs> I'd like to think about... I don't know, just maybe for the nature of my research, because I like to think to myself, there's always several sides, not just my side. And I think, especially nowadays with Twitter and stuff like that, people just go into argue and not really think about what the other person's saying. They're just going to say what they want to say, which is fine, but not every opinion should be heard, really. So um. <laughs> It's true, literally. Like I think Tiso's maybe a little bit more open to opposing views than us but your openness to opposing views has helped me be more open to opposing views so for example we did a we recorded a podcast and in Tiso section he spoke about how it's important to listen to views that are different from yours and those including those on like the far right for example or those that are right wing in quotations and the day after no it was that evening after we'd recorded a podcast I was on a panel talking about the H&M jumper with the black boy, like coolest monkey in the jungle. And just thinking of, like thinking about Tiso's words and listening to people that didn't think that was racist. It just really helped me think about where they were coming from a little bit more. So yeah. I think that kind of 
fits really well with the theme of the conference as well, because it sounds to me like what you're trying to do is open up space for conversation. I think that's important. I think the theories I always think about when I think about stuff is like Mill, like John Stuart Mill. It's like the elevating, like he's talking about truth and dead dogmas and everything. So people say a lot of stuff, but everyone's competing for such space. I think you've got to allow these people to say what they want to say, otherwise they feel a bit oppressed and feel a bit, get a bit annoyed and frustrated. So I try to listen. Sometimes it's hard to listen because the nonsense that people talk, and my friends talk a lot of nonsense. But, um, <laughs> but I think that's also part of the point of the podcast as well, is that uh, we're trying to make space for our conversation. Like it's not just about listening to opposing views, but it's also like as first and second year PhD students, there's not necessarily a lot of opportunity to be like, I'm here and I have a lot of opinions because, you know, you're kind of bottom of the pile in terms of like academic hierarchies. Don't make that face. It's true. <laughs> you know, and like, fair enough. Like, you know, you're not going to invite a first year PhD to a keynote speech at a conference, but it's about creating like our own academic spaces when you don't necessarily feel like your research group or whatever reflects the things that you're doing or trying to do. Like, I feel so, so lucky, even though I'm not doing my PhD at Goldsmiths, to have gone to Goldsmiths for that year, because I feel like I found, like, my academic people. And this is a way of keeping that alive and, like, growing that community and kind of making our, like, as Sarama says, like, you know, like, when you've got to, like, wiggle to make room, we're doing that wiggly ourselves and we're creating our own spaces. And the fact that we're here doing this now is wonderful. But I felt like when we started, I wasn't that bothered if no one listened to us because I was like, I'm just so pleased to be doing this with us and like keeping this connection but don't going. You think, like when you're doing a your PhD, I didn't realize how lonely it can be. Like you go off and do your research and then you can literally not see anyone for ages. And you'd sit in your room reading books and you're not really being sociable. And you're so involved in this world that you kind of, I'm speaking for myself, you lose kind of grip on reality because all you talk about is this one thing. It's, that's all you do. So when someone says, what do you do? I'm like, uh, read books. <laughs> Literally, that's what you do, read books. So this was kind of like, and be to kind of meet people who you, you might not see for ages. And so we met on a regular basis and it's like a way of having friends, being sociable, being normal. I think that what you've described is something that's been concerning me for a while, which is to do with how individualized that PhD experience has become. Mm. And also about how this kind of idea of the academic expert requires some, to some degree, a sense of being a singular person rather than being a person that's engaged in conversations. So even that discourse around the originality of your PhD does weirdly mistranslate into this idea that you are the lone expert, which I think is really problematic. And finding spaces where you can be with your peers and have those quite difficult conversations at time is quite important. To what degree do you think that what you're doing now, now that people are listening to you, Saskia, and um, <laughs> now you have some, some regular listeners, to what degree would you describe this as a form of public sociology? A hundred percent. I think sociology should be an activist discipline and that doesn't necessarily always mean like going on marches and stuff but if you are not 
doing sociology because you think there are problems in the world that we should be trying to fix and I don't really know why you're doing it and even if you're like the most theoretical sociologist of all the sociologists and you're just reading like really high level stuff all the time if you're not doing that because you're like we could be doing things differently then I don't I'm not really sure <laughs> what the point is so for us it's like if you're, you should be engaging with the world because sociology is about like the social world so it's not about sitting in your like ivory academic tower and just writing your papers. Obviously that's an important part of it, but I definitely see this as a form of activism because we're trying to put those ideas into like a different space. Yeah, definitely. And I think this also comes into um, one of the reasons why we started the podcast is through feeling slightly alienated by sociology, not doing enough public sociology like we're in a really difficult political moment. Where are the sociologists? I mean, there are some amazing sociologists, the ones that hold um, dear to me, most of which are at Goldsmiths now, that do some amazing public sociology. But where are the rest? What, what's happening? Like we have got to, like, and Saskia's right. If I'm telling you, if I'm saying you've got to do more public sociology, I'm not expecting you to be down at Downing Street every week. I'm not expecting you to put yourself on Sky News. I'm not expecting you to do that. There are ways, there are subtle ways that we can be communicating research outside of the academy. There are so many ways that we can do that that aren't necessarily that laborious. That there are things that we could do. We have the means to do that. And I just wish that we could that would happen a little bit more. And that's what I've really liked the theme of this conference, I think, is there's been a lot of talk of public sociology and activist sociology as activism, which I think is really important. For me, it's a bit more simple than that. Like it's about not everyone can be an activist or not everyone really cares about much, but people are concerned about social issues. So sometimes it's a conversation. Most of my mates are having a conversation. I'm not gonna change everyone's mind, but it's getting some getting someone to think differently about something whether I convince one person or 20. And so as sociologists, it's kind of, I think our duty to be involved in having those conversations, going into speaking to your friends or having those difficult conversations with people that on issues, be it gender, race, whatever it is, but these things are important at the moment. So it's just having conversations, I think. Do you think to a certain degree that this is about showing people what the sociological is? Yeah. I would say so. I think there's so many people that I know outside of the academy that feel really alienated, but whether that be to austerity, whether that be to rises in racism, all the Trump being elected, there's so many people that feel alienated. And to give people the theory and analytical tools to understand why some things are happening, so using sociology to maybe comprehend their position, I think is something which we really underestimate that value in the academy. And that's something we could do a lot more of. Like, just like explaining to people like the fundamentals of Marxism. Like sometimes people are like, oh wow, is that what that is then? I thought it's just a load of commies. Like, do you know what I mean? Like having like a tiny little like conversations with people outside the academy of what thinking sociologically can do. I think it's really important. I think it's really valuable. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not like we're talking down to people, but yeah, it's like addressing like stuff that's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, and there's a disconnect. So my friends see me go to university and they see me come back with pointless information. That's how they would see it. But it's about trying to get them to engage and trying to understand that what I'm doing is important to you because the stuff that you're talking about, stuff I'm talking about, but at a deeper level. So my friends will try and tell me it's, it's a conspiracy. They're lying to you. 
And I'm trying to say that that's actually not the truth. It's funny, actually. Sorry, you saying that makes me think that on the other side of that, the people in like my social circles who are in powerful positions, asking people to question their position in the world mm. is threatening mm. for different reasons for lots of people. I don't I think like bringing those conversations into those spaces is a radical act. Uh, particularly because, as I've said before, powerful people hate being told that they don't necessarily have a God-given right to that power. And like starting those conversations of being like, well, why do you think that you worked really hard and therefore you're best than everyone else? It's like maybe a good thing. Like people have said that they listened to our podcast on meritocracy and were like, oh my God. I'd never even thought that like the idea that just because you're cleverer doesn't mean you do actually deserve more material wealth. Like, you know, just that just most basic premise of meritocracy, whether it works or doesn't work, but like the actual idea of it being horrible is, yeah, something that you need to, we need to like break open a bit more. So you're saying that there are conversations that need to happen with almost everyone we meet to, to encourage them to think in this way that's more sociological. And I, I think that you and I, Saskia, have had some similar experiences of trying to communicate what sociology is even to our own families. You know, my parents' friends will have these like drinks parties in their beautiful Islington townhouses. And invariably people are hedge fund managers, lawyers, doctors, and then they're all group off in their own little career groups. I don't know, I got so maybe he's not, maybe he's a lawyer actually. He was in the lawyer half of the room. And uh, he was asking me what I was doing at the time I was at York. And I was like, oh, I'm doing a sociology degree. And he was like, ha, ha, ha. Are you one of those hairy lefty feminists there? And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's precisely who I am. And another, like, how do you respond to that? It was so rude. And another woman, like, kind of peered down at me when I started sociology and went, how very 1970s. I think, yeah, I've had sort of the, particularly when, like, my black friends have listened to an episode on, that me and Tiso did on black essentialism, and they were like, when I say they, I'm talking about, like, four people as individuals, <laughs> um, they were like, wow, yeah, black essentialism, that's my life. I'm like, yeah. like, just giving people the, the tools to understand why they're treated in certain ways. Maybe not give it, necessarily giving them the answer, but helping them comprehend their marginality is so important. And it can be a device, I think, for self-care as well. Like, so you're portraying me in this way because that's what the state has always done. Like just things like that, like analyzing things in different ways, I think is really important. And sharing that analysis and knowledge with people outside of the academy is something we have to do more of. Most people are aware of their kind of oppressors. So most people have an inkling. So it's about kind of like making it a bit deeper, sharpening it really. So most people understand at some level that something's going on. But what I get scared of is when people do have an inkling, they go off down rabbit holes, and they'll say like stupid stuff to me like, about the Illuminati and Beyonce. Drives me insane. <laughs> that, that literally drives, oh, fight someone for that. <laughs> so. <laughs> the Illuminati, sorry, is like, it's just ultimate conspiracy theory. Yeah, we're not gonna give it that much airtime, but people, yeah. That, that's, that is it's true. Like if you're going to explain to people why they're marginalized, you can end up going, possibly going down a rabbit hole and being like, well, it's, 
it's all a conspiracy. We don't want that. We don't want to encourage that, but we want to just give people the tools to understand the histories of oppression and how that manifests now in current society. What I've really liked about the podcast, another thing that I've really liked, because as you know, I'm your biggest fan, <laughs> is the way that, you know, one of you all use a really big word and then another of you all go, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Could you just explain that? And I think that that's a really good public good. What do you think it is that makes your podcast different? And I'm thinking of the public facing side of things rather than necessarily your, what you've got from it as peers. Um, who we are as individuals, like our identities, class status, racialized ethnicities, like all those things I think are really fundamental to how we talk about issues, our own personal experiences come into I'd say 100% of the podcasts we record. So I think another frustration with the current media is representation. So I think, yeah, just a really little thing is, yeah, who we are as individuals and how you don't necessarily see three of us together in spaces, usually. You see us together, but not in the media. I don't know. I suppose our podcast is not to be, I didn't want it to be like so academic. Like I think that puts people off because I think academics are good at talking to academics it's great we will not be talking about but I want to it sounds so cringy be involved in the world you know so I speak on the podcast how I speak to my mates I think that's unique because I don't think academics will use long words and a lot of theory I remember when I first started my PhD and everyone's telling me about their research topics and I asked the skis I was just being friendly I said what's your topic he said a lot of words and I don't know what any of those words meant. And I just went, yeah, it's really interesting. I wanted to avoid that. So a podcast where you just speak in the vernacular, just like. What's vernacular? <laughs> just in your like natural, your natural language, how I speak to my friends. And I think that matters really, because people want to be understood. That's you know? also part of our public sociology. I feel like everyone should feel like it's okay to ask, what do you mean by that? Mm. I feel like you should never be embarrassed to be like, can you please explain that to me? Because that's a legitimate question. If someone can't change the way they've explained something, then it's probably not a very good idea in the first place. Well, like, you know, like that should be something that everyone should be able to do. But yeah, in terms of like our, um, why we're different, I don't actually see anyone else doing what we're doing. From definitely from a sociological point of view, even other sociology podcasts or other anthropology podcasts or whatever are super like, today we're going to explain a particular sociological concept and then we're going to break it down for you. And like that definitely has its value, but it's not really trying to speak to anyone outside of like degrees and universities. And so, yeah, I think the public sociology aspect of it does make us unique. And as Chantal said, like who we are as individuals. I mean, my understanding of what you're trying to do is you're trying to demonstrate to people what thinking sociologically could look like about particular current political issues? Yes, but I think people, the criticism people would say is, one, if we're talking about sociological issues, maybe you should go a bit deeper if you're talking about, so into theory. But then I think theory would alienate people, unless you're academics. And then also another criticism people would make is that we are all left-leaning. So it's like an echo chamber of like lefty kind of thoughts. And, Yes, that's true. I can't deny that. It is true because we are tend to be left-leaning. I don't see that as a criticism, but I think if you just own it, it's being reflexive, isn't it? <laughs> but I think also we are left-leaning, but you spend your entire life reading far right. I like, do. I think 
you do yourself down. <laughs> like that's some serious labor there. And like, I feel like you are, you said uh, that Tiso plays devil's advocate, but I think it is also just like that Tiso is more aware of worlds that Chantal and I can't engage in because it's too <laughs> disturbing, basically. Yeah, definitely. I think that Saskia's right. You've got, there's not that many people that I know that are doing the sort of thing that we're doing. That's not to big ourselves up. I think it's really important. Like, I know I sort of went on a bit about like public sociology, like where are the sociologists? Like that's not, I'm not criticizing individuals. Like it is the institutions and the structure, which is why people can't do more creative work with their public sociology like sociology is infected by neoliberalism like that's what's happening here like it's not I'm not having a go at um, individual academics there but I think in order to fight back on that we have to be doing more with our sociology basically even if sometimes it is quite laborious yeah so sociology for you is a political project always I've been talking about this with a few people at the conference actually like some sociologists like claiming they're apolitical now in order to be more like to come across as more um maybe authoritative in their research it's like if you're not taking a side like Les Back says doesn't he he says you always have to take a side if you're not taking a side then who are you letting down I think we should own the rage own the rage sociology should be angry boring if it's like objective is boring that's not life it's like sterile like I'm definitely used to my politics that influence my sociology I'm pissed off man like I've worked in the city and you think to yourself like these people are dicks sometimes <laughs> and so sometimes. you know they're dicks and then where I go where I, where I live and I see stuff and I think come on guys man like, it's 2018 you're saying stuff from like the 19th century that's you're taking the piss now so you're pissed off so my politics do influence what I do and what I read and I don't make no qualms about it. If you, if you do that, then you're lying. You're not being true. So, yeah. I think we've covered most of the questions. The final question that you asked me to ask you was, <laughs> was the question about how in those... I can't remember how long you've been podcasting for now. It will be a year in September. So in the last nine months, how has it changed how has the podcast changed? How has your experience of podcasting changed? I think one thing that's definitely happening, that's been happening over the last few months, is that the podcast is possibly becoming a place to allow other PhD students to talk about their research and giving them space and a platform to communicate their research before they finish their PhD. So that's something which is definitely sort of developing. We are having more people approach us to come on the podcast, more academics, more early career researchers are approaching us. So I think it's developing definitely in a more public sociology way, but not just the three of us. So we're having more people that want to come and tell us about their research and communicate it in a way that's accessible. So I think that's a really exciting theme that's emerging. I think what's definitely changed um, for me is, as I said, we started it because, or I wanted to start because I was angry all the time and didn't have an outlet for it. I think what's changed for me is like, I feel like I'm an activist again and that's like a good thing and a bad thing, but it has completely changed the way in which I am in the world. So like as an undergrad, I was like women's officer at university and I was doing other stuff and I found it so 
you know, I didn't know at the time, but I was like on my way to a mental breakdown and it was so like painful and isolating and horrible. But also you constantly have that thing where you feel like at any moment, someone might say something which you're just like, oh God, <laughs> like, why would you say that to me? Like, you know, just, I don't know, it was women's also, I felt like I could never ever say what I thought because like, the forces of opposing feminism were so terrifying to me that I might get like ripped apart by it. I felt like I had to hold myself in all the time. And I don't feel like that now, but it's definitely a bit scary being back in that kind of feeling of like, okay, like, you know, we're basically an anti-racism podcast now, which is not necessarily the banner that we set out under, but it's kind of organically become that. And now I'm kind of experiencing like, this sort of in-your-face racism when people say things to you and you're like, I literally spent my whole life thinking about why that's wrong. And now I have to deal with you saying this to me. And like, I almost like, it's just like bringing up those feelings again of being like, can I really cope with this? But then at the same time we have the podcast and that, as we've said, is like our mechanism for coping with a lot of things. So it's a good thing and a bad thing. Well, that's because I don't even really know. But I, for me, in a personal level, it's like, it's made me feel closer to like, well, make some new friends, do some new things, first conference, things like that. And I don't know, it's just made me feel a bit more involved in the university. Because I, like I said, coming from like the corporate world back into academia, it was a bit of a culture shock. It's made me feel a bit more normal because I was kind of feeling in between two worlds. So yeah. Yeah, just following on from what Saskia said, it is really interesting what's now happening with the podcast because people are starting to, we're getting more listeners and people are starting to approach us saying that they enjoy it more so than before, which is really exciting. We've just received some support from Goldsmiths to keep it going as well, which is really great. That's financial support. But I was was literally saying this to Saskia yesterday, the moment is starting to come where people will start to engage with us that really don't like what we're saying. And that is scary. Like if you put yourself out there, if you put yourself out there on social media, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, where as Tiso said, a very left-leaning podcast, we're an anti-racist podcast. So you are welcoming racists to comment on what you're saying, basically. So that's, that's daunting, but it doesn't daunt me as much as things like that have done in the past because I have my friends with me doing it. It's no fun if you're not arguing with someone, is it? It's, it's having a debate with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you don't run on Twitter, T-Zone. <laughs> the thing is, this, this is why I couldn't be... Wait. I think when that starts, I think me and Saskin will just direct the more sophisticated racism to Tiso and you can reply because it's just... In a serious note, when you're, not, when you're online, people are not looking to kind of debate, really. So if I'm on, like, Britain First website or from on their Facebook page, they're not looking to have a debate. They're looking to just say what they want to say. And basically their whole argument is to make you look as silly as possible. So they'll say something absurd. So a problem with people when you're an academic, you want to show people how wrong they are. So you try to start explaining stuff. That's not the point. They're looking for quippy things. They're saying to you like, you're an idiot and you're, you're getting wound up by it. And that's, that's the whole thing. So don't get sucked in. If someone says it, sometimes reply, sometimes don't reply but just don't get, don't play their game. I'm going to add in another question because that's my prerogative. My question is for anyone else who's thinking about starting a podcast, perhaps while they're a PhD student, what would be your top tip? 
Um, my top tip would be don't do it on your own because like just like writing a PhD makes you go crazy on your own. Like do trying to do a podcast on your own, like it's hard. Yeah, don't do it on your own. And have, this is something that we definitely are starting to focus on now. And we, we're talking about it a lot more now. Who are your audience? Like, is your audience focused on who your PhD is about or what your PhD is about? So you, say if you're doing a PhD on education, like, are you directing it to education scholars or people that are working in schools? Like, where is your audience? So definitely being more specific on who you want to target, I think. Uh, I think the thing that has really helped us this is going to sound really corny, but actually having you around, Mikola, has been really great because <laughs> yeah, you've been so supportive. And I think it was you that got us the studio in the library or pointed us in the right direction. Like, you know, before we were recording on my uh, crappy dictaphone and I would say, you know, try and find, try and find like a supporter who can just like back you because... I don't know, it's given me a lot of confidence. And when Chantal was like, oh yeah, Mick listened to it and said it was really good. I was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa, Mickler thinks it's good. So yeah, no, I, yeah. I would just agree with what's been said. Like you have to like have support and don't to do it on you by yourself because you, I don't know, it seems so daunting, isn't it? Where do you start? Agree. I would say do it, do it, do it. I was talking to someone at Royal Holloway who was like, oh, we should do one for our research group and have a podcast. And, but he said that he'd tried to do it before and loads of academics have been like, oh no, I hate the sound of my own voice. That's not a reason to stop doing a podcast. You never have to listen to it again. <laughs> Get someone else to edit it. You never have to listen to it again. It's such good practice. And if you've got something to say, then people will want to hear it. So yeah, do it. I think more academics should get used to listening to the sound of their own voices because so many other people have to listen to them. Yeah, good point. Like the privilege of not having to listen to your own voice. I've got to listen to it. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. I mean, just to, to come back on, on your corny comments. <laughs> it's so inspiring to see how early career researchers like yourselves are coming together to really take up that uh, challenge of taking the sociological out there. And I don't think that we're going to have those problems that you pointed to earlier in the future when all of the rest of you are in the positions that some of us are fortunate enough to be in already. Because there isn't going to be a question about whether you do sociology publicly because you're already doing it. And I think that that's been a really important lesson for me over the last few days. And I'm really glad that that's what's come through. But now I wanted to open up the floor to questions for the floor. Oh, hi, I'm Steph. Um, thank you. That was really interesting. And I really like the way that you're taking those complex concepts and distilling them into a communicable and accessible thing. And I think what you were talking about earlier is so important about the representation that actually these are public issues that we're talking about. And if we're only talking about them to get head nods from people who already agree with us, then what's the point? But I think you started talking about it earlier, about that negative comeback um, that's coming on. And just sort of how do you deal with that, those ideas from people when you do make these ideas accessible and you do break them down so that they matter to people's lives? Once you've listened to their arguments, how do you then deal with that negativity, I guess, that that comes once you've put yourself so publicly in that situation? I guess as people that in our own right 
are marginalised in certain parts of society, we are used to those conversations and those comments in a way. It doesn't make it any easier. We haven't had anything like on social media that's like abusive or anything yet. And we haven't had anything on any of our platforms like that. I mean, I think I've definitely become more aware of different microaggressions whilst coming into higher education anyway. I think it's one of the strengths of doing a podcast is learning how to communicate yourself in a more articulate way. So I guess... I mean, it doesn't really answer your question. Like there's only so much like hate someone can deal with. I think I, so a couple of months ago, I tweeted something about Jermaine Greer and like I got, my tweet went viral. It was when she was on Radio 4 and I got so much abuse and I just had to turn it on, I had to put it on mute. And I think that's a good way of doing it. Not engaging with people that are just like, as Tiso said, like really right wing people that just putting stuff like, oh, you're a stupid bitch or like, stuff about like rape and stuff like it's grim like it's not very nice like why am I going to engage with that yeah so uh I would totally second that I mean and even the more like intelligent racism if that's what you want to call it like people who have the clever words and the clever arguments I mean I having having dealt with that stuff as like you know women's officer my instinct is just to be like I'm not engaging you know, as I said, I tried really hard not to write anything controversial. And this was, this in my mind is so uncontroversial. I wrote like a 600 piece word piece for our like student newspaper about why no women ever ran to be president of the student union. And basically it was like, because like misogyny, I mean, it seems pretty obvious. And the comments I got on that were just obscene and like, they all like used my name in this really personal way. And like, I didn't read most of them, but there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and like, you know, rape threats, whatever. And of course, cause it's student newspaper, they're like, why would we regulate the comment? You know what I mean? Like you just like, and I see what happens to people on social media who are anti-racist and are well-known. And I just think you can't engage with that stuff because that's why you're doing it in the first place. You know what I mean? Like the reason yeah. you're doing it in the first place is because you're already being attacked on a daily basis. So I don't really feel the need to respond. But if it's in day-to-day life, so it's, if it's in the personal, I'm engaging. I'm, I'm going to talk to you about what you've just said to me. Like it happened like the other day. I'm going to be like, well, why are you making a face? I was just talking about um, my experiences as a black woman in different spaces. And someone in the audience said that... Um, can I not be more inclusive of other groups that get racialized? And I said, well, I see your point. And he gave some examples. I see your point, but I'm talking about the way black women are treated and the microaggressions they face is different. It's this problem that we have with difference, maybe equal in sameness, and it's not. And when I gave him that answer, he pulled a face. And I was like, okay, you've just pulled a face. So you obviously don't can't see where I'm coming from here. You can't empathize here. And he said something else. I said, well, you're not a black woman, so I can't expect you to understand. Um, so it, those conversations, I definitely feel more confident having now. And I do think it's important to engage in those if you can. Like yeah, you don't then, have to. And then someone else at the conference then said to me, oh, I recognize I was sitting behind you in that talk. She thought that I had pulled the face when uh, Chantal had been like, like black women face a particular form of oppression. She thought I'd pull the face and she was like, wasn't that really bad the way the woman just like shut you down? I was like, firstly, that was not me. (laughs) And secondly, I think she wasn't shutting him down. Like that is part of the racism. Like you are now 
perpetuating that racism and I was like trying to explain to her why watching a server is really problematic and she basically just walked away from me but like it is really insidious and you're right it should be challenged but that's what I mean it's like you can challenge it and challenge it and people will just be like well you're being really mean to me I suppose from doing a podcast I can answer a question like um, when you take things public people are going to disagree with you and as a human your first reaction gets your back up because no one likes to be wrong so you have to kind of, it's your own ego at first you have to get over because you think, shit, he disagreed with me. First of all, you, you, your immediate reaction is to be confrontational. So I kind of learned to kind of not to be as confrontational because this is meant to be a debate. So if you're being a confrontational, no one's getting hurt. Everyone's just saying their opinion. So it's about one, looking at yourself. So I look at myself and I think to myself, why am I getting so upset? Because sometimes what they said, they might actually have a point. But I'm not really listening to the point. I'm being confrontational because I want to prove I'm right. That's not what happened at the conference. No, no. But, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm just saying for my... I'm just saying for everything that... When I'm, yeah, when I'm talking. But So it's about kind of how I deal with it, trying to understand myself first. And I think that's where it starts from. And then, then you can start looking at other people and how you're talking, how you're debating. But the first thing I do is try not to take offence at everything that someone said. Because sometimes that's what happens. We hear the first words that come out of their mouth and we're not looking to analyse it. Any other questions? Oh, Jesse Abrams from University of Surrey. I just wanted to say something that like, uh, like I used to be really, really angry, like I'm still angry, but like my PhD, through my PhD, I was really angry and I agree with you. Like, I feel like we need to be angry in order, well, I need to be angry in order to do like good research. That is, and that is what makes me do my research. But then through like after, since finishing my PhD and starting working in academia, it's really hard to, to maintain the anger. Like, and I'm really frustrated with watching myself be less angry about things. And I don't know if it's because I'm exhausted from being angry or because like the institution is just inherently trying to stop us being angry. But I feel like that it seems to me like a really great, I don't know if you feel like that, it seems like a really great like space to maintain that anger in some ways and express it and like have it kind of legitimize that it's okay to be angry about these things and that we should we should and continue to talk about them. And I guess I do that with like groups in a similar way without being on a podcast, talking to people and having a network that's kind of supportive of that, but. I think that's really interesting. I'm getting more angry, not less angry. (laughs) But that might be because I have a secure position as well. So I wonder how much that interplays with the precariousness of early career labor, perhaps, I don't know. Anyone? Oh, I'm Sarah. I was just wondering how you choose your topics and how you prepare for them. Yeah, so our kind of original thing was, it's something that's made you angry, like before the podcast, so like you break the topics that we bring and things. I think I thought it was because of this thing of like listening to the news all the time and being like, oh, that was such a stupid way of portraying this particular news story or whatever. And like the way people have been represented in it. And so, yeah, like, you know, each of us comes with a topic and we talk about why that particular thing has made us angry that week. So, yeah, that can be in the news or it can be something that's just like happened to you, something someone said to you. I don't know. Does it still work like that? I'm not really sure. (laughs) As as I was saying earlier, it's kind of evolving a little bit. Like the way when we have guests on the podcast, 
we talk about, we spend the hour talking about their research and how it relates to the sociological and how we relate it to everyday lives, basically. Like we have actually done a podcast recently, the three of us, where we spoke about the news. It's not out yet. We don't really prepare. Like I know that sounds a bit ridiculous, but we meet about 40 minutes before we're going to record. We sit and talk about what we're going to discuss. And then we just start recording and continue that discussion if that makes sense. So, because I'm so engaged in the news, there's always about four things I've got to choose between that piss me off. So it's just a case of narrowing those down. I mean, when we're having researchers or academics on the podcast, we obviously prepare, but yeah, it's quite organic. It's meant to be like a conversation. So it's kind of prepared because you have an idea what you're going to talk about. So I roughly know what I'm going to talk about, but it's supposed to kind of evolve as a conversation. So the idea that you could participate if you was there and you could chip in with your two cents or whatever. I just want to come back on the anger thing. I think it's interesting that you say when you started working in academia, you feel less angry because you're exhausted. To me, being angry almost feels like a luxury because as I said, like I had a breakdown when I left university. I was really like very ill and like you can't be angry when you're, you can't think about what's going to happen tomorrow you're literally focusing on like how am I going to survive the next half an hour you know like you know I'm not saying working in academia is as bad as <laughs> um being seriously mentally ill but we're privileged you're privileged like it takes a lot of energy like being in a new job takes a lot of energy worrying about where your contract's coming from takes a lot of energy like all those things and I don't when I say that I think sociologists would be angry like being an activist, like it is a huge amount of labor, it's a huge amount of emotional labor. And I totally get that you can't be angry all the time, but like, I think it will come back when you, when it needs to. I suppose when you start work, it's the idealism. You start off so optimistic, you yeah. want to change stuff. When you start working, the system grinds you down. You conform, you have to conform. You have to play that game. So I think this space here allows you to kind of vent those things. Cause like I said, in the, when I was working in a corporate environment, I heard some shocking stuff. But because you have to play that game, you can't really comment. But this gives you the opportunity to say those things that you want to say to your colleagues, like, that guy's a dick. Did you hear what he said? <laughs> what a cock. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Zoe. Um, if there's any new listeners who have discovered you through this conference, do you have any top tips on your back catalogue, like top recommended episodes? That's a really good one. Can you answer that question as well, Mikola, as one of our... So, the episode that made me the angriest, and I was almost shouting in the street as I was walking to the station, was when Saskia and Chantal did their first Alternative Women's Hour. And I know, talking with other people who'd also listened to that episode, it was that thing where you're walking along the street and you're listening and you're like, oh my God, that is my life. And it was just like those micro, you know, those microaggressions that we all hide so well around gender, around being sexualized as young girls, around being sexualized all the way through your life. And I thought it was so powerful and I understood exactly why politically you needed to do that at that point in time. So that's the one that has stuck with me the most. But I have to be honest that I have found something exciting about every single episode. 
that's really kind that's really nice yeah we definitely had a lot of feedback after that so just to just to reiterate me and Saskia do a separate podcast the two of us um called the surviving society alternative to women's hour where we talk about um women's issues sexism gender like what do you like so basically and we've more recently had a guest on there as well so I think definitely checking out those two episodes is a good one I think my two favorite episodes are definitely are me and Tisa did an episode on black essentialism which was really important for me it felt really like a, I was just so much racism like I know it's just it's not I don't mean to sound presentist here and that means focusing what's happening in the present but just so much racism manifesting right now in the UK and just being able to talk about that on a podcast was really important um the other episode which I actually really like and people have fed back to me that they like is the Meghan Markle one which I think is good and like those conversations that we were having when they first announced their engagement in like November it's sort of really interesting how this it's still a really relevant episode now also I would say uh I think we're releasing it kind of this week um that Chantal Tiso did an interview with Prim Gopal at Cambridge and it is so good <laughs> it's so good I'm so excited to listen to it that's again that's going to be an exciting moment for the podcast releasing that one I think so yeah, yeah I think so it's a re- yeah it's a very um like because Prim Vada has had all this like insane racism directed at her for daring to question the racism that she experiences and just hearing her talk about like histories of race and racism she's so articulate she's so cool and she and Tisa have this amazing conversation I just yeah I'm so excited for it to be in the public domain because I want to listen to it all the time so see my favorite ones are the ones where I come along and I I learn something so Saskia's one of meritocracy blew my mind I was like wow (laughs) I I never really thought about that so you think to yourself like all your life, your parents tell you, you work hard, you get the job. You go to work, you go to school, and you're thinking, well, when you apply for a job, this is not actually working. Like, I'm applying, but I'm not actually getting jobs. Is this actually true? And when Saskia dropped that, I was like, blew my mind. <laughs> it, 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 blew, it blew my mind. And like I said, like, I think the best podcasts are, like I said, I go there to learn stuff as well. So I listen to what Saskia and Chantal are saying. I was thinking, oh, that actually makes sense. Or sometimes I disagree with what they say, but it gets me thinking. So... That one in particular stood out, the one about meritocracy, because I thought, yeah, I never actually thought of it. That one's Harvey Weinstein, meritocracy. No, and... black hair. Oh, black hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what Tuesday talks about, but the first thing is black hair, meritocracy, and something else. Yeah. Also, I was just thinking the one thing I really enjoyed talking about was uh, free speech at universities. Yeah. I just, I really enjoyed reading about spikes and being like, well, this is fucked up. I think it's... Just like, because it's in the news all the time and it's insane. Like the whole story is premised on nothing and the way spikes have created this entire, like, you know, it's debated in the House of Commons. It's like becoming, like legislation is being introduced on the back of nothing. Um, so yeah, I think- No, I'm not excessive. It's on the back of people having the freedom to be racist. <laughs> like it's an important issue for our country at this stage, yeah, well. I particularly like the fact that Goldsmiths gets, what is it, were we red marked? Yes. We red marked by Spiked by the Alternative University rankings. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to own that. <laughs> yeah, but if you, the red mark is because Goldsmiths bans transphobic speakers. Like, 
that's a good thing. <laughs> like, in whose books is that a bad thing? It's in Spike's book. They, they love a bit of transphobia. So there you go. Any other comments, questions? My name's Amelia. Uh, so I'm not really from this context. My kind of background and my practice and research lies in dance and contemporary performance. Um, so some things that you're speaking about and that you're kind of knowledgeable on and passionate about is really interesting to me from a kind of slightly external perspective, but I'm, what I'm getting a lot of hearing you guys speak is that you've kind of created this safe space and really a valuable and productive space to kind of sift through not only your own personal experiences, but then how that kind of interrelates with other people's kind of inside and outside of your practice. And that just as a kind of tool for just managing self in the world, this big scary thing, but also as an early career researcher, it's just really, it's quite a beautiful thing, I think, what you've set up, this kind of rhythm of kind of sifting through your thoughts. And um, yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's really inspiring to hear actually. And I think there's something definitely super valuable about listening to you um, find a way to articulate and think through your ideas in the moment of a conversation, as opposed to the kind of traditional academic sitting in a room, writing a paper, rehearsing such paper, speaking such paper. Um, so there's something about that that is really a massive skill to be able to speak organically, um, spontaneously, articulately. Uh, so that's, yeah, really interesting. And it makes me think when I'm preparing for things that I'm going to have to say, I often record myself. I don't like hearing my own voice either. But um, there's something about being able to articulate what you think through speaking. And that's, yeah. So that's really inspiring. It's cool. Thank you. It is interesting, like, how we develop our thoughts through conversation. That's such a good point. I'd never thought about it like that. And we definitely do. And if you listen to the back catalogues, if you start from episode one all the way to episode 13, you're like, you see how we have changed slightly in the way we approach different issues. Like, we're more articulate. We are, we're still angry, but we're less, like, rageful I think mm -hmm. and that has developed through conversing rather than sitting in yeah sitting on our own writing about it it's through conversation yeah I really like that you call it a safe space because yeah. like you know it gets such bad press but obviously academia in general is a safe space for very particular people the reason safe spaces get a bad press is because like elites want it to be safe for them and don't like that these people are coming in and challenging their safe space. Like that's, so yeah, you're right. And I definitely like Tiso was saying about the loneliness of doing a PhD. That was always like my biggest fear doing it. Um, that, you know, you end up like sequestered away in some corner of the library and like you have lunch sitting by yourself at your desk and then like you don't see anyone all day and then you go home and people are like, what are you doing? And you're like, I can't explain it to you because it's so like, it's just my thoughts, it's my thoughts. Um, which is like a lot of people's experience. So yeah, having a space to come and articulate that, as you say, and like talk about it. I don't really know how other people do it without that. I think you're right what you're saying, but I think it gives you the ability, I've learned in a way, to kind of articulate what I want to say in a way that I can be understood and not by just a select few. So you want to talk about your PhD because it's something that you're passionate about, something that you're doing all the time. But how do you explain it to someone who's normal? They don't, <laughs> they don't care about the, the theory, but you, want to, you still want to explain it to them. So I've kind of through doing this, learned how to kind of boil down in essence what I'm talking about, the kind of headlines that make people think, yeah, that's actually quite interesting. 
But when you talk about it into a group of academics, they want the detail, but most people don't want the detail, they want the headlines. So it's allowed me to be able to articulate in a kind of punchy, flashy way, like what I do, mm. if that can. If it is sexy, I don't know. I don't know, is it a sexy thing? <laughs> I feel quite emotional. <laughs> like, oh, it's so nice. It's really like... <laughs> That's what I meant when I said about it being highly skilled, being able to do that. And so, yeah, just um, not to kind of undervalue that in any way. And this is a methodology. I'm going to be using podcasting as part of my PhD now because of doing this and because of being like, wow, people's like... Having people's voices in your ear is, it's a method, but also there is, again, it's like, it's the radicalism as that. It's like, obviously for a very good reason, a lot of research is anonymous and you can't identify people and that stuff, but it is a way of bringing things into the world. And I think radio, like, I always fantasized about being on the radio and now I can just do it by myself, so. <laughs> I love the radio. I think it's like a brilliant format and being able to, yeah, like bring people's voices, like podcasting's amazing because of that uh, freedom you have just to say whatever you want. <laughs> I think it's about also making ever visible that process because I think there's this bizarre thing, which is, you know, academics are so perfectionist about the final outcome and so what that does though for early career researchers is really mystifies that whole process so anything that can make that visible I think can be quite valuable. I was thinking what you're saying like your thought that you've developed as you talk it is like that's a radical practice just collaborating like that and my, my best ideas come from talking to people but you're just so pushed in academia like you have you have to have ownership over your ideas and this is your idea and this is your idea and it's like but it's not like me and a colleague write bet so good together and we don't even know by the end who thought of which thing and is actually really good <laughs> because of that because you say something and it sparks something in someone else and then they're like yeah that made me think of this so whose idea is it but does it really matter that's kind of it seems to me like what you're doing as well have you felt any pressure to take it in a different direction than the way you want to go like if you're growing and becoming more public and then you've got institutional support for things does that come with an agenda of yes we like what you're doing but we'd also like to see it taken in this direction that's a really good question and it's definitely something we're possibly on the cusp of but we were interviewed about this recently and the most important part of the podcast is that it is enjoyable for us. So we would never do anything. We try and facilitate it. So we're never doing anything that we don't want to not do. And we're really lucky that we, it has been our project as the three of us. So there is no one influencing or saying that we've got to go in a certain direction. I mean, one thing that does play into it is that it is, it does cost money to run a podcast. So that is something to be aware of if you're thinking of starting one. So more recently, we received a grant. I'm, at the moment, I'm applying for another one, and that is all to help with our costs. If we can increase the money that we're able to get to support the podcast, it means we're able to, for example, pay guests to talk about their activism. And that's so important. Like, as much as we, we want to do public sociology, but we don't need to be paid for it. But if, we all gonna, if we're going to get someone to come on our podcast and talk about the activism that they do, that is their labor, it's then more labor for them to come on our podcast and talk about that. So being able to be in the position to do that, I think that for me, that's my goal at this stage. But apart from that, it's just making sure that it's still a safe space for us and that we can enjoy it. I mean, the ultimate goal would be that we don't have to do any admin 
and uh, like <laughs> and that all we have to do is turn up and record but like that's what like the celebs get to do we're not gonna be that there's always gonna be admin for us i think but yeah i had this thought recently when i was talking to my supervisor because i'm in a geography department and he was like oh, you should send this round to geographers and get them to listen. And my head was like, oh no, does that mean we have to make it like a geography podcast? But then I like, obviously that's not what he meant. He was just like, like as you are, but like just, you know, this is a way you could promote it. But I think I always like have to counter that slight fear when people go like, oh, well you could do this. That I'm not immediately like, are we doing it wrong? Like the kind of second guessing thing. I don't know. Do you we've have had, that? that just we've mean? had more people. We've had more. I've had certainly had a few academics come up to me at this conference and tell me that they've been using our podcast as a teaching resource. That's the name for me. I'd love that for like to have had something like this to listen to whilst doing an undergrad. That would have been so great. Like, because I still didn't know understand how to think sociologically, even when I was doing my final year in my undergrad. Like, having something like this would be amazing. If we can, if that can be something that we do, then that would be fantastic. If the opportunity came along to sell out, I would. <laughs> if you meant more, tra- no, no. Um, basically, I've been thinking about the kind of ethical considerations that if you grow, it, there is a kind of influence from outside. So I've been doing some research. So even like top podcasts, like obviously my thing's the far right, so Prager You. So the reason why they have a, they, they follow certain topics because people that back them are right wing and have the money. So I was thinking about us, if we start growing, people would want to push their agenda. Of course they would. Otherwise they don't give you money for no reason. So how do we feel about that ethically? I don't know, it's a question for the future. But at the moment, we just are an organic thing. We do it for the love of it. Like there's no influence. If there was, free trainers, trainers. I want trainers. <laughs> <laughs> you know? We are willing to be sponsored by Nike. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> on that note thank you all very much for coming along today and thank you for surviving society which i think has got a long future ahead of it and i'm looking forward to see what you do next i mean from my point of view as as i said your number one fan i think that every single episode you grow in confidence And I think it's really good for people to be able to see that as well and to see that over those 13 episodes that the tone has changed a little bit as you've learned about the technology, as you've learned to not be quite so nervous as you were in that first episode. But I think it's also, you know, testimony to the three of you that you've put that out there and that you are proud of what you've done. So thank you very much. Um, can I just say at the end, you've been listening to Surviving Society live in Gateshead. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe. And goodbye. <laughs>